0: you're listening to living in the light and today's message from Ann graham lots points us to the wisdom of god and the comfort of god given to us in the holy spirit of god
1: the holy spirit has the power to change you what is there about yourself that needs changing
0: today on living in the light Anne asks a most important question. Is the Christian life working for you? And if it isn't, how will you make it work? Here's Anne.
1: The Holy Spirit's not only the wisdom of God and the comfort of God and the truth of God and the holiness of God, but chapter 14, verse 16. Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. And he uses the word another. And in the Greek, that word means someone exactly the same as. And so what Jesus is saying is, I'm a counselor and I'm going to ask the father and he will send you another counselor, someone who's exactly the same as me. So the Holy Spirit is another Jesus. So when did he come? Jesus said in chapter 16, verse seven, I'm going to send him to you. So I want to say, Jesus, when did this person come? And you know, Jesus was crucified on Passover, buried three days, rose from the dead on the third day. And then he was with his disciples for 40 days. He ascended into heaven. And for 10 days, his disciples gathered in that upstairs room. And there were about 120 of them at that point, And they were all praying And you know one of the things they were praying for is, God, please keep your promise. You know, Jesus, don't forget (laughs) to send down your spirits. And as these disciples prayed on the Feast of Pentecost, I'm assuming they went to the temple courtyard early in the morning, although the Bible's not clear about that, just because there were about 120 of them gathered in that temple courtyard. And as they were praying and celebrating Pentecost, there was a sound of rushing wind. And it sounded like a tornado coming through. But as they looked around, the leaves weren't moving and the trees weren't moving. It was just the sound of rushing wind. And then Peter looked at John and John had a flame of fire on his head. And John looked at Andrew and he had a flame of fire on his head. And Andrew looked at Matthew and he had a flame of fire on his head. And suddenly they were overwhelmed with this powerful sense of Jesus being there with them. And their hearts were filled with joy, joy that they had never experienced before. And they opened their mouths in a symphony of praise. And everybody in Jerusalem who had gathered there for Pentecost heard the gospel preached in their own language. And the disciples knew the Holy Spirit had come. Praise God. And the Holy Spirit came once and for all. Let me me make this clear. Just as Bethlehem and the birth of Jesus was once and for all, Just as the cross and the death of Jesus was once and for all, just as the resurrection of Jesus was once and for all, and his ascension to heaven was once and for all, the coming of the Holy Spirit was once and for all. So let me put this in context, sort of. How was somebody saved in the Old Testament? Like, how would the disciples have been saved, using the New Testament term, before Pentecost, And the Old Testament people were saved by faith in God's word as it pointed to the cross. And they exercised their faith. When God's word told them when they sinned, they were to bring an animal, like a little lamb, to the temple. They were to confess their sin, gripping the lamb with both of their hands. And it was as though the guilt of their sin was traveled along their arm, conveyed to the little lamb. The sinner took the knife, slew the lamb. The priest would take the blood of the lamb, sprinkle it on the altar to make atonement for sin. So they were going through that exercise, going through that ritual, because that's what the Bible said. And they didn't know clearly, they didn't understand all the facts, but that was like an audio-visual aid pointing to Jesus. But Hebrews says the blood of lambs and bulls and goats could never take away sin. So what they were doing was just exercising their faith in God's word as it pointed forward to the cross. So, when John the Baptist saw Jesus going beside the Jordan River, what did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. And when Jesus gave his life on that cross and shed his blood, it's as though God said to all those people in the Old Testament, Every time you sacrificed, that was like an IOU note. I owe you forgiveness. And when Jesus died, the blood of Jesus paid up all of those IOU notes. And the Old Testament saints, were forgiven, saved by faith in Jesus through the blood of Jesus shed at the cross, but they looked forward to the cross. Do you see that? So today, I'm so thankful I live on this side of the cross. Have you ever thanked God for that? (laughs) That I don't have to go to a temple and kill some little lamb and have all that blood smeared everywhere and, but I still by faith in God's word that points back to the cross, put my faith in. So now I grasp the lamb of God with my hands of faith And I confess my sin and my guilt is still transferred to the Lamb of God, but it's by faith and it's Jesus who's hanging on that cross for me and I see that he's the Lamb of God who died to take away my sin as though I was the only person who would benefit and he died and took God's judgment that should have been mine. And when I put my faith in Jesus like that, I'm saved, but listen to me. This is something the Old Testament saints didn't know anything about. Because added in the New Testament, on this side of the cross, we have something they didn't have. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, they had the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. I showed that to you from Genesis. But the Holy Spirit also was active in the Old Testament. For instance, when they were putting together the tabernacle they were building the temple, the Holy Spirit would come upon someone and teach them how to work with gold or work with bronze or embroider the linen and he would gift them and equip them for a certain task and then he would leave. And the greatest example of that is probably Saul of Kish, who was the first king of Israel. Do you remember? And the Holy Spirit anointed him to enable him to lead Israel. And then he sinned. And then what did God do? He removed his Holy Spirit from Saul. So the second king of Israel was David. And he was anointed. And the Holy Spirit came upon him to equip him to lead Israel. And when he sinned with Bathsheba, what did he say? Don't take away your Holy Spirit from me because he knew the Holy Spirit could come and the Holy Spirit could go. But in the New Testament, on this side of the cross, when you confess your sin and you come to the cross and you claim Jesus as your lamb who died in your place to offer you forgiveness and reconciliation with God, you open up your heart and you invite Jesus to come live inside of you and he comes into you in the person of the Holy Spirit. And Hebrews says the Holy Spirit will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Now, sin in your life may make you feel like he's left, and it can block that awareness of his presence in your life, but he will never leave you. You've been born again into God's family. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus, do you remember? Nicodemus, he said, you can have all the knowledge of the scripture that you want. You can be the greatest teacher in Israel, which he was. But he said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must receive the Holy Spirit to come inside of you. To illustrate it, when the angel visited the Virgin Mary, and he said, you're going to have a child, you're going to conceive a child, and she said, that's not possible. How could that be? Because I've never been with a man. And the angel said, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, and the life that you conceive within you is going to be the life of the Son of God. And she submitted and said, be it unto me according to your word. He came into my life when I was a little girl and I can't remember the year, but I think I was about seven or eight years of age. I remember the day, it was Good Friday. I was watching a portrayal of the life of Christ on television, came to that crucifixion scene and I was convicted of my sin. I believed Jesus died for me. I told him I was sorry. I asked him to forgive me and come into my life. And I believe as a little girl, I was born again into God's family because you know something, being Billy Graham's daughter doesn't mean I'm a member of God's family. God doesn't have any grandchildren, does he? (laughs) We all have to make our own decision. And he changes us into someone that he can use for his glory. Someone who reflects the image of Jesus. Someone so when your children look at you or your spouse or your neighbor or your best friend, they begin to see the glory of God, not just in your countenance, but in your character his patience and his love and changing me inside my home when the pressure is on, things are going wrong and I see in the midst of all of that that I can just sort of shift back and trust him and have a peace in my heart and respond to something ugly with sweetness and be the first to say I'm sorry. And I mean, that's all the work of the Holy Spirit. That just doesn't come naturally. (laughs) And he changes us. Praise God. The Holy Spirit has the power to change you. What is there about yourself that needs changing? And I don't want to say what is there about yourself that you don't like, because I know women well enough to know there are things about you that you don't like that God loves. (laughs) (laughs) And he's made you just the way you are. And he wants to use whatever that is that you have a problem. My daughter has curly hair. She hates curly hair. And I think she's gorgeous. And God made her that way. And how many times have I told her? You know, God has made you like this. He, he loves curly hair on you or he wouldn't have given it to you. So I know there's some things women just can get in a little, you know, funk about. But I'm talking about like a characteristic, a habit, an attitude something that happened in your past, and you think now it's crippled you emotionally or psychologically or spiritually. Listen, the power of the cross hasn't been dimmed or diluted over the centuries. And Jesus, through the person of his Holy Spirit, still has the power to change your life. And, I don't, and you say, Ann, if you knew what it was, I don't need to know what it is. I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit has the power. Keep, get your eyes off of yourself. Get your eyes off of whatever that is and put your eyes on him. He can do it. He has the power to change you and he has the power to change me and he has the power to change other people think about it for a minute the disciples going out into the Roman world that was very pluralistic multicultural everybody had their own gods and so the disciples are going to get up and preach that everybody's a sinner that Jesus is the only way the only truth the only life the only God, and that you'll never get to heaven you'll never be right with the real God unless you come to him by faith at the cross confessing and How would they ever convince anybody (laughs) that that was the truth? And they did. And they turned the world upside down. Within a generation, they established the church. So let's just think of ourselves. Our world isn't so different from the Roman world, is it? We think that it's so hard now and so secular. And, you know, things haven't changed a whole lot. How can you convince people today? How can you cause them to hear the inaudible and to see the invisible? and to understand the incomprehensible. You can't. We can't, you know that. The Bible says the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It just sounds ridiculous. So guess what? It's the Holy Spirit's job to do that. (laughs) Woo, doesn't that set us free? All we have to do is give out the gospel. Be faithful to proclaim Jesus. And it's the Holy Spirit who will work on the inside of that person and convince them of sin and righteousness and judgments. Letting them know on the inside they're sinners. They need to get right with the Holy God. And if they don't, there's judgment to come. It's the Holy Spirit's responsibility The Holy Spirit has the power to change you and me and the Holy Spirit has power to change others. Praise God, we don't have to do the changing. We just have the privilege of telling them about the love of God and about the Son of God and about the cross of Christ. So my prayer is, dear Jesus, I want more of the person of the Holy Spirit and I want more of the power of the Holy Spirit in my life and I want more of his priority and his priority is the word of God and it's the written words in verse 13 he says when he the spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all truth he will not speak on his own he will speak only what he hears and the priority of the Holy Spirit is the written word of God he inspired the pages of our Bible he inspired the words that are on them and so one of his priorities is to get you and me into the Bible so that we can understand what God says, that we might apply it to our lives, that we might obey it, that we might live it out, that we might find that the Christian life in the power of the Holy Spirit does work, and that we might live our lives to the glory of God. And as we pursue more of Jesus, you have to do that through the pages of Scripture. And it's the Holy Spirit's priority to get you into the words and to have it permeate your life so you live by it. So listen, when you read your Bible, when you study your Bible, pray first. Would you do that? And just ask the dear Holy Spirit to give you the mind of Christ and to help you understand the things of Christ. That you might not understand everything and you can't answer every question and that's one reason there are teachers and preachers and commentaries and things like that. But listen to me, that book was not written just for preachers and teachers and commentaries, okay? The book, the Bible, was written for ordinary men and women. Those epistles in the New Testament, sometimes we think we have to have a commentary to read, those were letters written to people like you and me sitting in church who had just found Jesus as our Savior and we needed to know how to live the Christian life. And so he had people like Paul and Peter write letters to explain to people how to live out the Christian life. That's for ordinary people to read and understand, okay? Don't make it so hard. It means what it says, it says what it means. Nouns are nouns, verbs are verbs. You know, there's no special sort of mystical interpretation until you come to Revelation. (laughs) (laughs) And then you have a lot of symbolism and Zechariah has that, Leviticus maybe, but you know, the rest of scripture and Psalms has some poetry that is symbolic, but scripture is scripture. Words are words, nouns are nouns. You can just ask the Holy Spirit to give you a mind to understand. But pray first. Ask him to do that for you. And I know he will because it's his priority to do that. His priority is not only the written word. His priority is the living word. And he says in verse 14, he says, he will bring glory to me. Jesus saying he will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. And it's the Holy Spirit's priority to help you know Jesus and love Jesus. And he does that as you get into the pages of your Bible. But there's that beautiful verse in verse 16 that says, you know, now you're going to see me, now you won't. And, I, and you remember after the resurrection? When Jesus appeared to the women at the tomb, and then he disappeared. Then he appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then he disappeared. Then he appeared in the upstairs room, and then he disappeared. Then he appeared to... You remember all this coming and going? It's just so... And you know what I think he was doing? (laughs) Training his disciples to live by faith that whether they could see him or not, he would always be present with them in the person of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's priority is for you and me to know Jesus living in us and with us and around us and under us and through us and over us that we might be saturated in the person of Jesus. But he does that through the scripture. So his priority is that you might know Jesus as he's revealed through the word of God. Jesus is not different than the word of God reveals him to be. Jesus Christ is exactly the same as the scripture says he is. And so we see him in Genesis chapter 1. I've already quoted to you verse 1, when God created everything. Verse 2, the spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. Verse 3, and God said, his word went forth, And we would think, you know, that's nouns and pronouns coming out of the mouth of God until you come to the gospel of John chapter 1 verse 1 that says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, and His name was Jesus. That is Jesus, God the Son, pre-incarnate in Genesis chapter 1 verse 3. Colossians confirms it. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. He's the creator. And we find Him in Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God planting the garden, preparing a home for Adam and Eve. The Lord God, Jehovah, the one who reveals himself to his people. That's the pre-incarnate son of God. The first homemaker. Isn't that precious? And then he's the one, Holy Spirit, turning the puzzle pieces over to show us the Lord God forming Adam out of the dust of the ground, breathing his own life into him. And we see Jesus before Bethlehem, the pre-incarnate Son of God, forming man in his own image and then creating woman, equal but uniquely different. And we find them in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve had sinned and they were cowering in their shame and their guilt. And it was the Lord God, Jesus before Bethlehem, the pre-incarnate Son of God, who found them cowering in the bushes and slew that animal. And I wonder when he shed that blood, did he weep, knowing that it pointed to his own blood that one day would be shed on the cross to take away their sin once and for all, bring them back into a right relationship with their creator. But now he would just clothe them temporarily with the skins of an animal. And we find the Holy Spirit turns over the puzzle piece in Genesis chapter 16. I love it. When Hagar is running away from Sarah, first time the angel of the Lord, pre-incarnate son of God, in some sort of a visible physical form, Appears in scripture. He appears to a woman. Isn't it sweet? And not a descendant of Abraham. She was an Egyptian slave. Running away from her mistress. And he meets her there. And he asks her why she's running away. Is this where she wants to be? And then he sends her back to Sarah. And she named the place. This is the God who sees me. We find him two chapters later in Genesis 18. Abraham sitting there in his tent in the heat of the day. And the pre-incarnate son of God shows up on his I assume his tent doorstep. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to come back next year. And Sarah and you are going to have a son. Now, Sarah was 89 and Abraham was 99 at that point. And she was barren. She'd been barren all of her life. And he says, I'm going to give you a son. And the next year she had a son because that one who showed up at his tent was indeed the pre-incarnate son of God. Jesus before Bethlehem. And we find him in Joshua. The Holy Spirit takes that puzzle piece and turns it over. And we find him as the captain of the Lord's host. And Joshua's gone out to see how he can take Jericho. And the captain of the Lord's host says, take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. And then he tells him how to take Jericho, the strangest command strategy that was ever given to a general. (laughs) But it worked. That was the wisdom of God, wasn't it? That was the pre-incarnate son of God telling Joshua how to overcome the enemy And we go on through scripture and we find them with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When Nebuchadnezzar says, you have to renounce your faith in your God. And they said, we're not going to do it. And Nebuchadnezzar says, then I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. And he did. And the fiery furnace so hot, it burned up the guards that threw them in. But not a hair on their head was singed. Nebuchadnezzar must have rubbed his eyes and he peered in that furnace and he said, wait a minute. I threw in three. Why do I see four? And the fourth is like the Son of God. Jesus, before Bethlehem, in the fire with his children. Isaiah saw him in the year that King Uzziah died, seated on a throne, high and lifted up. And he described him as a lamb by whose stripes we would be healed. And the Holy Spirit turns over the puzzle piece so that we look in that manger in Bethlehem at that baby in swaddling clothes and we know we're looking into the face of God. And we see him grow in wisdom and stature and fullness, favor with God and man, until he smashes himself on a Roman cross and the Holy Spirit turns over the puzzle piece and we see my Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, dying to take away my sin, shedding his blood to forgive me. And the Holy Spirit turns over the puzzle piece and we see the risen Christ standing beside the empty tomb, alive, with a wound in his brow and Wounds in his hands and feet to always bear the marks of his love for you and me. What it cost him to take away our sin. And we see him ascending to heaven as the risen Lord. And the Holy Spirit turns over the puzzle piece and we see him seated on the throne at the center of the universe. As king of kings and lord of lords one day. To come back and receive us to himself. And reigning and ruling In this world with righteousness and justice. And it's the Holy Spirit that takes the things of God and the Word of God and opens our eyes that we might see Jesus. Listen, it's all about Jesus. Jesus said the Holy Spirit's priority is Jesus. He has no other agenda. He lives to glorify Jesus, to exalt Jesus. And you say you're filled with the Holy Spirit? then you need to be exalting Jesus and glorifying Jesus and stop drawing attention to yourself or to something else. And we're just here because it's all about Jesus. And if the Holy Spirit is filling your life, Jesus will be coming out of every pore. (laughs) And you'll live for his glory alone. So my heart's cry is, dear Jesus, please, (laughs) I want more of your spirit in my life. And you know what he said to me? And... I can't give you any more. Because when you invited me to come into your life and I came into you in the person of the Holy Spirit, all of the Holy Spirit you're ever going to receive came into you. The Holy Spirit is a person. You don't get him in pieces. Listen, the newest believer, if you've asked Jesus into your heart and life today, you have as much of the Holy Spirit as I have and he's been in my life over half a century. So, Anne, if you want more of my Spirit in your life, then you make sure the Holy Spirit has all of you.
0: Now here's Anne with this final word.
1: Saturate yourself in God's Word. Ask the Holy Spirit to turn the puzzle pieces over until you see the colored bits on the other side. And as He does... And as the pieces begin to fit together and make sense, the picture emerges. It's the picture of a man, Jesus. Make your hearts cry for more of His nearness. Give Him all of your heart.
0: Living in the Light is a weekly study in God's Word with teacher and author Ann Graham Lotz. Learn to listen to His voice then start making the choice to keep on going and believing and trusting who God is. Go to angramlots.org. Take advantage of the many helpful free resources to get you started. Join us again for Living in the Light.